Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for praying for me. I really appreciate that. So, again, my name is Luke, if we've never met. And this morning, I want to start by reading you words written by a guy named John. I'm not talking about John from the Bible. This John doesn't have any status, you might say, no human importance. But I think that the story he tells in these words is a story that most of us can relate with now or have been able to relate with before. So, let's, so yeah, just listen to this. Hi, my name's John, and I have something I need to get off my chest. I'm a 46-year-old banker, and I've been living my whole life the opposite of how I wanted to. All my dreams, my passion, gone. In a steady nine-to-seven job, six days a week for 26 years. I repeatedly chose the safe path for everything, which eventually changed who I was. Today I found out my wife has been cheating on me for the last 10 years. My son feels nothing for me. I realize I missed my father's funeral for nothing. It seemed only yesterday when I was sure I was going to change the world. People loved me, and I loved people. I was innovative, creative, spontaneous, risk-taking and great with people. I had two dreams. The first was writing a book. The second was traveling the world and helping the poor and homeless. I'd been dating my wife for four years by then, young love. She loved my spontaneity, my energy, my ability to make people laugh and feel loved. Now we get to where it all went wrong, my biggest regret. I was 20 and I needed to be stable. I needed to take that graduate job which would dictate my whole life. To devote my entire life in a nine to seven job, what was I thinking? How could I live when the job was my life? After coming home, I would eat dinner, prepare my work for the following day, go to bed at 10 p.m., and wake up at 6 a.m. the following day, only to do it all over again. God, I can't remember the last time I've been intimate with my wife. Who am I? What happened to me? I didn't even ask for a divorce or yell at her or cry. I felt nothing. Now I can feel a tear as I write this, but not because my wife has been cheating on me, but because I am now realizing I have been dying on the inside. 26 years of living my life opposite of how I wanted to. Can you imagine having the realization the last 26 years have been a waste? Maybe some of you have had that realization at some point in your life and you've had to work through that. John's only 46 and he still has 25 more years in the workforce, maybe 40 more to live. His life's not over. But the point is, John realized what the person I have always wanted to be And the person I wish I was is not the person that I've been. And it's not the person that I am. You see, the thing about this story is that John wasn't forced to do any of the things he did. He chose his path. He made the decisions that shaped his life. And those decisions, those choices, came out of the things that he believed. He believed He didn't even know he believed it, but he did. He believed that the most important thing in life is to 
make money and advance your career. And because of that, he realized that he lost everything and wasted all that time. There are beliefs that all of us have, individually, beliefs that our families have. There are beliefs that shape our very lives, that guide all of our decisions, that inform our choices. And a lot of times the scary thing is is that the things that we believe that are negatively affecting us the most, we're not even aware of. So the question I want all of you to think about as we start this morning is what are the beliefs that are currently shaping your life? Are you proud of the decisions and the choices you've been making over the past number of years? And if not, what are the things that you believed during that time period that you still might believe now that need to change? So a guy named Paul talks about this in the Bible. And I want us to take a look more closely at what the Bible has to say about this issue of beliefs. Paul, he was a Christian in the first century. He met Jesus and was so moved by his interaction with Jesus that he gave his entire life to take the message that um, Jesus was telling him to the rest of the world. So Paul, he would travel by foot or he'd travel by ship to all of these different cities in the known world at the time. And when he would get to the cities, he basically walk in, start talking to people about the message of Jesus, which was, hey, everything that's wrong in this world, all of the evil, all of the pain, all of the sin, God has sent Jesus as an answer to that. And Jesus died and physically rose from the dead so that you can leave your old life behind and let it die and spiritually rise a new person. And as he was proclaiming this message, many people, droves of people, city after city, were accepting it and entering into relationship with God and experiencing that freedom. This series we're in at this church is the power to be free. They were experiencing that freedom. And so after Paul had been doing this for several years, some people started to notice what he was doing and think to themselves, huh, I think I could go city to city and share an idea and get people to buy into it. And so people started imitating him. Now, if they were sharing the same message that he was sharing and, and had the same heart as he had for the people that he was going to, it would have been okay. But you see, these traveling teachers, most of them were in it for their own gain. They would make money off people that they, as cities they went to. They would share ideas that were not founded in God or in what Jesus had done, but just ideas that they had, that they they believed they could get people to buy into so they could gain status and they could gain some kind of accolades. And so Paul, this started happening in a church that Paul had planted in the Greek city of Corinth. These imitators started coming in and they started not only sharing a different message than the message that Paul had originally shared there, but started telling the Corinthians, hey, this guy Paul, 
don't listen to him. He's, this is what's wrong with him. This is what's wrong with him. This is what's wrong with him. And so Paul writes a letter to this church kind of warning them of what's going on and sharing with them how to get free from those wrong beliefs that were being sowed into their church by these traveling teachers. Paul calls these wrong beliefs strongholds. Strongholds. Before we go any further, I just want to give you all a quick definition of what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a set of untrue beliefs, convictions, that direct a person's actions and decisions. I put convictions in parentheses because it's not just like, oh, I believe grass is green and then a stronghold would be, I believe grass is blue. It's not like surface level stuff like that. It's like those deeply held beliefs that you have. It's those, those beliefs that if you start talking about them, you can experience, emotions start to come. You start experiencing emotions, be them positive or negative. It's those convictions that you have. And the strong, they're a stronghold when that conviction or that belief that you have is not true. And so strongholds negatively affect us because a lie is directing how we make decisions and how we choose things. So in John's story, there's a number of ways you could word what his stronghold was. One way you might say it is that John believed if I don't make money and advance my career, I'm a failure. There's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with advancing your career. I hope everyone in this room does those things. When it becomes wrong, when it becomes a stronghold, is when we elevate it to being more important than anything else, more important than family, more important than God. That's what John had. He had a stronghold in his mind about his career and about money. So let's start in 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to read this letter that Paul wrote to this church that was getting taught wrong things from these traveling teachers. Again, as we read this, I want you to think about what are the beliefs that you have right now that are shaping your decisions, shaping your choices. So 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and two, say this. Now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Though I realize you think I am timid in person and bold only when I write from far away, well, I am begging you now so that when I come, I won't have to be bold with those who think we act from human motives. So basically, what Paul is saying here is that Hey, Corinthians, I heard that some of you guys have actually bought into these teachings that are not true and that are meant to deceive you. And I hope I don't have to do this, but when I show up, if I need to, I will be bold with those who are believing wrong things about me and about Timothy, Paul's traveling companion. Sometimes you need someone in your life who can look at you and with boldness say the truth to you. I hope you have one of those people. I'm sure John, 
from the story I read earlier, wishes that five years into his career, someone would have sat him down and said, John, hear me clearly on this. Your career is not more important than your marriage. Money is not more important than your relationship with your son. What would that have done for his life? If he would have, he would have still had to choose whether he received it or not. But if he could have made a change there, that's 20 years of his life that would have gone differently. I hope you have someone in your life who can look at you and look you right in the eyes and boldly tell you what you need to hear. Now, you got a lot of people, you might call some of these people social media warriors who want to boldly tell everyone what they think they need to know, you know. And truth is, you have to earn the right to be bold to somebody. You have to earn it relationally. You have to earn trust with someone before you can speak with them with that kind of boldness. But I hope you have someone who can do that for you. Because oftentimes it is that bold declaration of truth that can reveal those strongholds and give a person the power to be free. So let's keep on reading. Verse 3. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. Let's stop right there. So all throughout this letter that Paul's been writing to the Corinthians, he's been talking about how these traveling teachers are waging war, waging war like humans do. He talks about how they're manipulative. They are manipulating people into believing things. He talks about how they're greedy, they're motivated by greed, he talks about how they're adulterating the word of God, meaning they are twisting the truth. They're taking real things that God has said and they're twisting it to support their agenda. And so there are plenty of examples in the Bible of how we can wage war as humans do. I think that a modern day example, if you want to see one, just log on to your Facebook account. If you want to see a way that, if you want to see how people are waging war as humans do, just look on your Facebook account. If you don't have one, you might not want to get one. Because <laughs> you can never unread, you know. Now, Facebook isn't bad or evil. Um, all Facebook does is it takes people who have dysfunction in their minds or in their hearts, and it makes their opinions louder and more visible. And you might call, well, waging war as humans do, I want to give you three ways that people I've, that I've seen, that I've done, that we can wage war as humans do as opposed to as God would, okay? First one is this, learning only enough about what someone believes in order to ridicule them. This is how human beings wage war. You might call this waging war politically. So you got two sides. Each are so deeply entrenched in what they believe that all they do is hear the other person out just long enough so they can get ammunition to attack whatever it is they believe and to support whatever it is the person believes. Waging war politically. People that engage in this kind of dialogue, they don't understand that 
the goal of communication isn't agreement. Oftentimes we think it is. We think that, oh, I'm going to go talk to that person because I want to get them to agree with me. And then it'll be a win. No, the goal, of, the goal of communication isn't agreement. The goal of communication is understanding. Think about it. Have you ever been in an argument with someone? Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's someone else. And you want to do one thing, and they want to do another thing. And it starts to get heated. You're like, no, we need to do this because of blah, 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 and blah. They're like, no, 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 no. That's blah, blah. We need to do this because of this, this, and this. And it's elevating, and tensions are elevating and elevating. And finally, someone out of frustration goes, fine, let's just do it your way. Then the other person's like, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. We're going to do it your way, actually. I'm not, you're, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> you're not going to be the one who wins this. I'm going to be the one who wins this. And then they argue about each other's viewpoint for a couple of minutes. And then you switch back. And then you switch again. You switch back. Why is that happening? It's because we don't just want someone to agree with us when we're communicating with them. We want them to understand us. And so if I only cared about agreement when I was arguing, if I'm arguing with someone and we get to that point where they're like, fine, let's just do it your way. I'd be like, okay. I feel perfectly at peace now. But that's never the case, right? So the goal of communication is understanding. But when all we do is learn enough about what someone believes just so that we can show them they're wrong, there is no part of us that is trying to understand them. And I know maybe not everyone in here has got a Facebook account, but I know a lot of people probably do. And I just want to take a second to say this. Ask yourself the question, could you sit down with someone who's got a different viewpoint than you, maybe a different political viewpoint, maybe a different theological viewpoint? Could you sit down with them for a half hour and just listen to them and ask them questions about what they believe and make it your goal to understand them without ever sharing what you believe or pointing out the flaw in what you think they believe? If the answer is no, I don't think I could do that, then you're waging war as humans do. You're not, no matter what the idea is that you are protecting or defending, you're not waging war how God wants you to or how God would. And if you say, well, I think I could do that, when was the last time you did do that? And I think that that could be a challenge for all of us, that the way that God wages war isn't by tearing down the other person, it's by understanding them. And powerful things happen when people feel understood. There's a proverb that says, kind words spoken to someone is like putting coals of fire on their heads. When we show the love of Christ, the understanding of Christ, when we show kindness to people, even the people who disagree with us the most, maybe even hate us for what we believe, the results are powerful. If you think back to the Crusades, most of you probably remember them from history class. Um, I think that a lot of people, a lot of people who really love Jesus and who follow him sometimes fall into what I want to say crusader type thinking. What did the crusaders do? They were so convinced of what they believed was right that they would cut people's heads off and feel no remorse. And I think a lot of times, maybe not physically, hopefully not physically, 
If so, this is a this is a freedom conference, so we can pray for you in the back room. But hopefully not physically, but I think sometimes we cut people's heads off emotionally in the sake of defending what we think is right. And the ends don't justify the means. Even if we are right about what we believe, if the way that we are presenting it is cutting people's heads off, then it's wrong. It's not how Jesus would do it. And so in all of our social media posts, whatever we post, whatever we share, the question I want to ask you is, the viewpoint you're ridiculing is a honest expression of what it actually believes, evident in your post, even if it's wrong, is an accurate expression of it, evident in your post. And if not, then what you're posting is only going to add fuel to the fire. It's not going to bring about understanding, and it's not waging war how God would want you to wage war. Second way that we can wage war as humans do, turning off your love for a person because of fill in the blank. And now you might be thinking, well, if you knew what this person said or if you knew what this person did, then you would feel the same way. Yeah, maybe I'd feel the same emotions. Maybe everyone in here would feel the same emotions. Maybe even Jesus felt the same emotions. But he never turned his love off for anybody. Think about it. There are people who Jesus died for who are never going to accept him and who haven't accepted him. And there is nothing that we ever did to Jesus that made him turn his love off for us. And so in the same way, if we're saying that he lives in us, you know, for those of us who have crossed that line and accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we say that he lives in us, then no matter what, we got to keep our love on for other people. Can't wage war like that. Third one, I'm not going to talk too much about it, but the third way would be using shame and fear to coerce someone into doing what you want them to do. There is no fear in love, is what the Bible says. And so if we're inciting fear in somebody, even if that fear is preventing them from doing something dumb, it still is not the way that God would do it. Okay. So Paul says we don't wage war as humans do. And then in verse 4, he finishes his thought. Let's read that. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul's basically saying here, we rely on the divine power of God to destroy strongholds. Remember, strongholds are wrong ways of thinking that direct our actions and our behavior. We rely on God's power. God's power is supernatural. And so what this begins to tell us and is supported by other places in scripture is that when we're dealing with strongholds, oftentimes we're not battling against just a person's thoughts, but we're battling against demonic forces. We're battling against demons. You see, there's a spiritual world and there's a physical world in our reality. We can only see the physical world but there's a spiritual world that has got dramatic effect and has a huge impact on the physical world. Think about Hurricane Irma. 
can you see with your eyes the winds of Hurricane Irma? You can see, you can see the effects that the winds are having. You can see trees bowing over. You can see debris flying and rain going sideways instead of straight down, but you can't actually see the winds of the hurricane. In the same way, the spiritual world, even though we can't see it, it has dramatic impact on the, the physical world. And we can learn to recognize those effects. We can learn to see and discern those effects when they happen. And so in this spiritual world, you've got evil forces and you have good forces. You have God and his angels and you have demons. And so when we're dealing with strongholds, you can't see them, but oftentimes it's not just a person's thought. There is demonic influence there. Now, I know that when I say demonic influence, a lot of us get like movies in our heads, right? We think of... um, the exorcist or whatever, and it can be freaky. Um, One thing I want to clarify about demonic influence is that it is just that. It's influence. The word that we read in the Bible oftentimes is demon-possessed, and that word partly describes what's going on, but in case you didn't know, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in another language, Greek. And when translators read the Greek text and came up with English words for it, sometimes the words didn't quite translate well. And if you really look at the Greek word for demon-possessed in English, a better way to say it is demonized, because possession implies ownership, but the word in the Greek language doesn't imply ownership, it just implies influence. So when we get attacked by demons, it's not that they gain ownership over our bodies. You know, I was afraid of little girls for like five years because of all the horror movies where little girls would get demon-possessed, you know? Um, it's not like that. It's, it is simply demo- um, demonic influence. And so demonization can kind of occur on a scale where one would simply be temptation. And so in a sense, we are all demonized. Let's cheer for that. We're all demonized, you know? <laughs> um, we all experience demonic influence to some degree. And that kind of, you might call that a one on a scale from one to 10. And then a 10 would be the guy that we read about in the Bible in Mark chapter five, who has got like 2000 demons and he lives in a graveyard and he's naked and he breaks chains with his arms. Even he, when he saw Jesus, chose to run up and worship him. And so that shows you that demonic possession as in total ownership, you have no control, isn't actually the idea that the biblical authors are trying to communicate. And so strongholds, when we're dealing with strongholds, we're dealing with demonic influence a lot of times. You see, demons will use these strongholds to get deeper and deeper influence over us, to get a greater hold on us. And what's their agenda? Demons hate God and they hate us. And so they're trying to keep us out of relationship with God and keep us from walking in the freedom that comes in knowing Christ and having Christ live in us. And so let's read verse four one more time. 
Let's read verse 4 and 5. So here we go. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, one thing I want to say about strongholds now, I define them as untrue beliefs, but strongholds, they're not just untrue beliefs, they are lies that our enemy has spoken to us for the sake of keeping us in greater bondage. And so when we believe these things that aren't true, we are kind of like giving into a lie and giving into this influence the enemy wants to put around us. Also, the scripture we just read says that they are thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God. So strongholds actually are designed to prevent us from really knowing God. And not just knowing him intellectually, but knowing him as a friend. You know, a lot of people think that God loves them when they're good and is really disappointed and mad at them when they're bad. That is a stronghold in people's minds. And the enemy uses that to keep people constantly in shame. Strongholds are thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God. One thing we see from the scriptures that strongholds, they often start as thoughts and then become opinions and then become arguments. I remember when I was 21, I kind of just started following Jesus a couple years earlier. And I really felt passionate about convincing people that didn't believe in God that God existed and kind of convincing them with logic. And there's nothing wrong with doing that whatsoever. Apologetics is a great ministry. But for me, I actually had a stronghold that if I can't convince people that I'm right, then I uh, can't feel secure about my own beliefs. And so I remember buying this book that was written by an atheist. He had been a pastor and a Christian. He had been in a uh, ministry that does missions work called YWAM. And... He starts the book with a chapter describing his deconversion, going from a pastor and a Christian to an atheist. And then the rest of the book are all of his arguments. And all, none of his arguments really fazed me at all. But reading his story really deeply impacted me. And I thought back then I was doing it so I could kind of like better understand the people I wanted to convince, you know, you ever heard, you got to learn to think like your enemy? Um, I don't know if I totally agree with that because we need to know how, our, maybe we need to know how our enemy thinks, but we got to be always thinking like Christ. Because when we start to think like the people who he's calling us to love and to reach, we are taking on really negative thinking patterns a lot of times. And so, so anyways, I, I read the story and I believe right in that moment, the enemy got a hold over my mind. And it was weird. I was reading my Bible every day, memorizing scripture, praying every day, leading a small group of high school guys, really from the outside, living my life for Jesus. But every single day from the moment I read that chapter, I would have these persistent, sharp, intellectual doubts of God's existence. And... They started off just as thoughts, but then I started to hear in my mind, oh, 
you just think differently than other Christians because it's part of your call. And so I started to not only experience those doubts, I wonder if God really is real, do I really believe this? Not just experience those doubts, but I started to justify them and have an opinion. No, this is just how I think because you know other Christians, they can just believe without doubts, but it's part of my call to believe with doubts. And then I kept believing that, and pretty soon I started to have this like argument where if someone was like, hey, I don't think that having constant doubts every single day, multiple times a day is good. Oh, well, no, you just... You don't understand the call God has on my life. This is totally normal, and and you know you're just you just don't have this calling. And if you did, then you would say something different. And it wasn't until I went to a conference by a traveling kind of teacher and pastor and evangelist named Robbie Dawkins, who he's funny. He's famous for um, miracles, him praying for people, and then them being miraculously healed, but. When I went to him, it wasn't any of that stuff that got me free from my doubts. It was him teaching, hey, some of you have started to believe lies that the enemy has spoken over your identity. And then God spoke to me and said, Luke, you've believed the lie that you just think differently than every other Christian. The truth is that you think like Jesus. And just having that understanding the lies immediately dropped like 80% in frequency. And then it, wasn't, it was about six months after that that they were totally gone. I had a stronghold in my mind that was demonically inspired and demonically sustained that God had to free me from. Now, in my case, it was simply hearing the truth and understanding the truth and realizing the lie I had believed that got me free or started my process of freedom. And for a lot of you in here, we all have strongholds. I have more that I'm not even aware of right now. And I'm probably gonna find them next week and next month and five years from now and 10 years from now. And when I do, I'll get up here and preach on them and tell you about them then, okay? (laughs) We all have strongholds, okay? And sometimes all it takes is understanding the truth about the situation to be free from them. Other times, however, we need to rely, as Paul said, on God's supernatural power to get rid of them. And there have been plenty of times where someone, I've been talking with with them, and they realized a stronghold that they had in their mind, a stronghold that was shaping their decisions and their choices and that was causing them to live in a way they didn't want to live and to think a way they didn't want to think and to do things they didn't want to do. And when they found them, the first thing I had them do, would have them do, forget who I learned this from, is out loud reject the lie that they had believed for however long. Sometimes it was a couple months, sometimes it was their whole life. So for, in my case, I would say I reject the lie that I just am different in my thinking from all other Christians. And then I'd have them declare the truth. And so then... They would declare the truth. I declare the truth that I have the mind of Christ and I think like Jesus. And then, after they had rejected the lie and declared the truth, I would lay my hands on them and I'll say, in Jesus' name, I break off the demonic power that was attached to this stronghold. Sometimes, nothing dramatic happened. Sometimes the person would feel a sense of peace or a burden that would come off of their back. 
Sometimes they would burst into tears at that. And then there have been times where some more dramatic, we call these demonic manifestations, when demonic power that's attached to a person comes out physically. Sometimes demonic manifestations would happen and we'd pray more until they were totally free. But the point is, is that not all strongholds have got demons attached to them, but strongholds are the primary way that demonic beings will try to get access into us. Because strongholds in nature are thoughts that prevent us from knowing God. You can't get any more in line with a demonic mission than that. And so in verse five we read, Paul talks about taking these thoughts captive. So when you, a lot of times when you become aware of a stronghold in your mind, you will have like a moment, like, you know, a couple days of just intense freedom. And then day three comes and the thought comes back, you know. And what Paul says is to take that thought captive. And a lot of times I think we read that or we experience that and we take that to mean stuff that thought. No, I'm free from this. I'm going to stuff it. I'm not going to deal with it. Oh, no, I can't. But taking something captive, think about that. It's not just like avoiding it. Like if I want to take someone captive, if I wanted to take, so I've got some interns in here. If I wanted to take them captive for some reason because they weren't doing their jobs right, okay, I wouldn't just like avoid them. I would chase them down and tackle them if I needed to, you know? Like for example, there's a a little video clip that I want to show you. I think that this is a, this is at a football game and a fan that, like a a fan for, uh, you know, I'm just gonna let you watch it. All right, (laughs) go ahead and roll that video. Did it hurt when you got tackled by that linebacker? No. No? It didn't. No. What do you think? Have you seen it on television? Have you seen um, it? Yes, I seen it last night. All right. So that's what it looks like to take thoughts captive, okay? Pick them up and body slam them. Um. How do we know? How do we find strongholds in our lives? For ways you can find a stronghold, you can find those beliefs that are shaping your life in the way you don't want them to. First one would be to confront fears. Emotions are not positive or, they're not right or wrong, they are indicative of right or wrong beliefs. If something happens and you feel anger, it's because of a belief you have. It could be a right belief. Sometimes there's anger that is justified. But emotions simply indicate what you believe. Fears are never from God. And so if you find something that you're afraid of, confront that fear, ask yourself the question, why am I afraid of this? If there are any single people in the room, maybe some of you have had the fear before, oh, I'm so afraid of what if I don't find someone? Well, ask yourself the question, why are you afraid of that? And the answer would be, I don't think my life is going to be as meaningful or as joyous or as satisfying if I don't find a spouse. That is the belief that is shaping, that is responsible for that fear. The truth is, even though it's hard to believe, and I was there 
just a couple years ago. It's hard to believe, but the truth is that fullness of joy is found in God and found in Jesus. And even someone who never ends up in a relationship ever can live a perfectly satisfied, meaningful, joyful life because the root of all of those things is not in people but in God. Second way you can find those strongholds is discipleship. Is there someone who sits down with you on a consistent basis? Could be one person, could be a couple people, could be a smaller group, but the point is there's someone who sits down with you and asks you questions about things you're going through consistently. Third, spend consistent time in the scriptures. This is like the preemptive way. A lot of times in reading the Bible, I'll discover strongholds in my mind before I am even experiencing them. And then fourth, just talk to God about it. Sometimes I'll be experiencing fear and I won't be able to figure out why I'm afraid. I'll be like, God, can you just show me why am I afraid of this? And he'll just speak to me. And I'll be able to, okay, I need to, I need to let go of that belief. That's not good for me. Now, in the story I read you from the very beginning, John, he obviously had strongholds in his mind about his career and about money. He didn't seem to describe any demonic manifestations. He may have had them, but he didn't tell them in his story. But the point is, these strongholds are the enemy's number one way to keep us out of our destiny and out of relationship with God. C.S. Lewis, great quote from a book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Don't wake up 26 years from now and realize that a belief that you could have dealt with now kept you from living the life that you wanted to live. Truth is that if we keep on thinking the same way that we've always thought, we're going to keep on doing the same things we've always done. And so I just encourage all of us to continue that process of finding out what are the things in my life that I believe that are not letting me live out who I know I really am. I hope you find those beliefs that are shaping your life in a negative way and you rid yourself of those by the power of God and you find those beliefs in your life that are letting you live out who you were called to be, who you were made to be, and you hold tightly to those. Ushers, I'm going to invite you forward. We're going to move into the worship part of our service. If you were on the most left, <laughs> someone said a couple weeks ago, most left-turn, the most left-turn side of your row, the most left side of your row, if you want to reach down, there's a basket right there. If you could pick it up and pass it, that would be awesome. Once the basket passes by, if you want to stand, we're going to enter into worship. You can come forward if you want, and let's just take some time worshiping God.